is a picture of the world. Egypt's a picture of slavery. Now, it's a literal place. These are historical things. But God uses the events that happened in Egypt to tell the story of how he has delivered all of his people from sin and bondage and captivity. And so uh, th- there's a and when when Israel as a nation regularly would run back to uh, to sin or when they got into a difficult time, like, for instance, when Babylon was bearing down on them and about to destroy them. The book of, of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah was prophesying that destruction's coming. Give it up. You guys have walked away from God, idolatry, all the different things you've done. And God's going to destroy you. So best for you to take your lickings like a man and just deal with it. You know, you've sinned and there's going to be consequences. And the uh, false prophets kept saying, no, no, Egypt will come deliver us. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back there and they'll send uh, they'll, they'll send some armies and they'll help us. So we'll make an unholy, ungodly alliance to try to undo the mistakes that we've made to try to avoid the discipline of God. And so they ran to Egypt and they still were destroyed and Egypt never was able to save them in the same way that our false gods never can save us. Our functional saviors never can save and deliver us. And so uh, what has happened so far in this passage of Scripture is we've, we've gone through the plagues and the Passover that we celebrated last week with the Lord's Supper. And then this week, uh, what we're looking at, chapter 13 involves their, um, as they're leaving the city, what happens in the next couple moments as God brings them and leads them on a path to uh, a dead end where they have no options, to the Red Sea. And they are closed in when Pharaoh's armies are going to come. So we'll look at the separation or God departing the Red Sea next Sunday. So look at verse 1, Exodus chapter 13. And I'll just read along. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is in the first is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Then the Lord said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out, and when the Lord brings you out, brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your all of your territory, all of your land. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your head and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore <clears throat> keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So a couple things happening here. Um, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn child to the Lord. And so this was to commemorate what God had done as he brought judgment upon the Egyptians and he spared the life of each firstborn child in God's rescue of his people. He wanted them to remember what he had done. He wanted them to never forget how he had spared the firstborn child of every one of the Israelites 
Firstborn child, certainly the firstborn men. By the way, there's a debate here, and I, I still don't have really a clear understanding of this, and I have not been able to read anybody that um, commentaries that really give a clear understanding. But it seems, several people have asked me, was it every firstborn child that died, or was it every firstborn son that died in, in male animal? Was it only the animals? And I'm leaning towards, best I can tell based upon some of the root words and the genders implied on those words, and hearing some wiser people that understand the Hebrew more than I do, uh, reading some of the best minds on, on the language or whatever, it seems that it was the firstborn sons that, that died okay, of the Egyptians, firstborn male. And that's what he asks them to do to remember what, uh, how God had delivered him. So take the sons and consecrate them before the Lord. Set them apart. So in a similar way that we just dedicated Caroline, who's clearly not our firstborn, um, nor is she a son, but nonetheless, as we dedicate her to the Lord... There's something holy and special about that firstborn child, that firstborn um, child that God gives a family and a, particularly a son, particularly in, the, in that time the, the, because of male headship. Wow, that's a whole can of worms. Let me go there. So he, male headship, this is very unpopular in our feminist culture, okay? And so I don't know which, if it's really not political, it's biblical, just to be um, quite frank and honest. Uh, a gentleman I met with several months ago, told me he was interested in doing some study, like masculine study, study of, of um, um, you know, issues that men deal with. And so he thought he would like to get a master's degree and maybe in counseling and dealing with uh, masculinity and whatever. And I told him, good luck. I would love to know if you can find uh, a campus in the United States of America that actually has a uh, masculine studies program. And the fact of the matter is there is not one. But most of them have studies for feminism. They have department heads and people that are that are pushing and forcing a, a view of masculinity or, or diminishing masculinity and bring about femininity and demasculating men. They're not letting men be men and women be women, but they're they're trying to to make over um, you know to to demasculate men so they would just stay in the corner and be quiet and whatever and and you know suppressing them. And you see this in the media, you see this in all kinds of different stuff. And so we, it's important for us as the body of Christ to say, okay, if we believe that the word of God is our final authority, okay, rather than responding politically, let us reorient our thinking based upon the word of God. Let's make sure that what we believe is biblical. And so let me just give you a little biblical framework briefly, okay? In the garden, Genesis chapter 1, God creates man, woman. Genesis chapter 2, he goes into detail of how he created man and then he said there wasn't a helper um, fit for him, and so he causes him to go to sleep, and he creates woman out of the man. And so he has now created man. He's created woman out of the man. And so he's put him in this perfect environment. Everything's perfect and wonderful, and they have this spectacular, awesome marriage. And there's only one thing they're not allowed to do, and that is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can eat of the tree of life all, of the, all they want. They can eat of every other tree. They can name animals and frolic in the garden and have a wonderful time and walk hand in hand, face to face with God in the garden. Everything's perfect, but just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do they do? Serpent comes along, goes to Eve, not to Adam, and has a conversation with Eve. Really good stuff. You ought to try it. Look at it. It's awesome. It tastes really good. It's going to make you wise, which is First John tells us is the three things um, lust the eyes, lust the flesh, boastful pride of life. Ultimately, that's the definition of sin. That is the definition of what happened to them. Those are the three lies that they bought. The first sin was not the biting of an apple or whatever the forbidden fruit was. The first sin was the consumption of a lie. Has God really said? 
got really really sad. And so it was a, he bought into, they bought into a lie. And the first person who actively sinned physically was Eve. And then she gave it to her husband who was with her. He sinned. Now sin has entered in the world and man has fallen. And all the stuff that you, we get upset about and that the world complains about, if there was a God, why does he let this? Why does he let that? What does he let? He, he didn't start this. He created a perfect environment where there was none of the problems that we get mad at him for. And we messed it up. We messed it up. And we're dealing with the consequences of our decisions as a people, as humanity, and we continue to make our own bad decisions. And had we been in the garden, we would have done the same thing. Now, God comes looking for them. And who does he go to first? Does he go to Adam or does he go to Eve? He begins his conversation with Adam and he says, hey, what happened? Who told you that you were without clothes? Because they were afraid of God at this point now and they're hiding from him. They try to construct their own coverings. Um, and God says that's not sufficient. And he says, who told you that you are uh, naked? What's going on? Why are you hiding from me? And he says, well, that woman that you gave me, she ate of this fruit and and so then he goes to Eve at that point and says, what's the deal, Eve? What happened? That serpent came and he did. So everybody's blaming somebody else, right? And then if we push and we fast forward to the book of Romans, it says through one man centered, entered into the world and it accredits Adam as being the first one to sin. Now, technically speaking, Eve was the first one to sin, right? But God doesn't see it that way because of the concept of male headship. He holds Adam responsible for not leading his family and being passive. Adam was passive. When confronted with a sin, Adam did not take responsibility for it. Adam did not live by the truth, and Adam did not think through the long-term consequences of his decisions, which incidentally is the four marks of biblical manhood. Okay, Reject passivity. Take responsibility, lead by the truth, and live for the greater reward. That's the four marks of biblical manhood. Reject passivity, take responsibility, live by the truth, live for the greater reward. Jesus, on the other hand, though he didn't do anything wrong, being the second Adam, he was willing to come to the earth, not being passive, but taking the initiative to go after his bride that had left him and walked away and was uh, sinful and had gone after... uh, you know, was, was in captivity and bondage. And he comes after her and he takes responsibility, not for his sins, but for her sins, dying on the cross. Lives by the truth when he was dealing with Satan, trying to tempt him. He just said, you know, he would argue with him. Has Satan's saying, well, God said this and God said, misquoting scripture and Jesus combated him with the truth of the word of God. Jesus didn't make decisions based upon the moment and how things felt, but he did only what the father had willed for him to do. He always obeyed the father to the point where he said he delighted to do the will of his father who sent him even going to the cross. And he did it for the greater reward because he knew he would have an inheritance of a bride that he would one day be able to marry. Uh, and that's the consummation of that bride. It's going to be a big feast in heaven one day where the church is going to come and meet the groom, uh, Christ, and there's going to be this restoration. And so that's the big picture of creation. By the way, let me give you one more background to this. Um, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have the Trinity. God is one, but he has expressed himself through three personalities that are equally God, but they're distinct in how they relate to us. And within the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is not the third string 
God. He is first string God. Jesus is first string God. And God the Father is first string God. They're all first string. They just express themselves and relate to us in different ways. So that being said, there is perfect unity, but yet there is a mutual deference and submission to one another within the Trinity. God the Father is at the top, and God the Son willingly submits himself to the Father, and God the Spirit willingly glorifies and points to the Son. And he elevates and and lifts up the Son. And so in that mutual uh, submission to one another, that is the pattern for marriage, and that is the pattern for the home. It's not about men being better than their wives. Men are not better than their wives. Clearly, our wives are, uh, you know, all of, I've not met, I don't know, I've met a man that hasn't outmarried himself, right? Um, we all understand that, okay? We're pretty pathetic, guys. We understand that. We really desperately need our wives. We need the help there. Uh, and their uh, encouragement, all those things, is certainly a blessing. But nonetheless, there is a order that God has established in a home and a mutual submission to one another, but nonetheless, an order that he's established. And one day, every husband will stand before God and he will be held accountable for the way he has led his family. The wife isn't going to stand before God and be held accountable for how she led the family. And after the fall, one of the things that's said there is uh, to the wife, your desire is going to be for your husband, and that's not passion, by the way, and he will lord over you. So God's saying, I've put an order, but because of your sin, there's going to be, it's never going to be easy in your flesh. You'll never be able to do it in your flesh. And that same word for desire is the word used in the fourth chapter when um, Cain kills his brother um, Abel. And it says that sin is crouching at your door, ready to overtake you. That's the same way that says your desire is going to be for your husband. In other words, you're going to be like a lion wanting to devour your husband and take over and control your home. And, and yet he's going to be over you. So that's what we call dysfunction. All right. And that's why every marriage and every home and all of our parents and all of our parents, parents and all of our parents, 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 all the way back to Adam and Eve, we all have grown up in dysfunctional homes. Okay, and to the degree that they image and they reflect and they point to Christ is the degree that they're healthy. When we, there's mutual submission to Christ, and because of our submission to the Lord, wives are willing to submit to their husband's leadership and servant leadership because they're not submitting to him because he's great, but they're submitting to Jesus because he's great. And husbands are willing to die for their wives and lay down their, and which doesn't mean they take a bullet. That means they wash the dishes. That's what die to, your, to yourself and die for your wife means, serving your wife. That means you help and you serve, and you, you might take a bullet, but, but you are going to submit yourself to serving and loving and caring for and nurturing. And, and as a husband cherishes and loves his wife, the wife will respect and appreciate her husband. And God's designed men, the greatest need is love and respect, um, is, is to be respected. And a woman's greatest need is to be loved and cherished. And so that cycle of them meeting one another's needs is, is working and healthy, whatever. And some of you are marriages where that cycle's broken and there's a stalemate and everybody's on their side of the aisle going, well, I'm, I'll start when they start. And I would say, men, start and just submit yourself. And so if women, if you could just close your, eye, your ears for a second, um, man, you just need to do what you're supposed to do and you obey what God has told you to obey regardless of whether your wives are going to do that or not. Love and serve them and take care of them. And if men, if you could proverbially uh, close your ears for a second, women, your responsibility is to do your verses and you just submit yourself to the Lord. Ultimately, Christ is your husband that you're submitting to and you're trusting him. He's the only perfect husband. And so you're submitting yourself to him 
trusting him to change your husband. And you do what God has called you to do, and you'll be obedient to submit yourself to Christ and to die to yourself and to stop trying to overtake and conquer your husband, but pray for him and serve him and be an encouragement to him that he would be the spiritual leader because guys will give up and run from that responsibility and become passive really fast. By default, men, they become passive. They refuse to take responsibility. And so we need wives that are willing to not rescue us or take over that, but submit and, and be willing to encourage us in that. And to the degree that you're doing that, hopefully your husband, God, will bring repentance and faith and he'll be, come back to where he needs to be. Okay, so husbands, you do your part. And stop telling your wife to do her part. And wives, you do your part and stop telling your husband to do his part. And if everybody's doing their part, then everything's fine. Understand that? Now, how did I get there from this passage? I'm trying to remember how I get back to what in the world? Headship. Oh, yeah, male son. We're consecrating a male son. There we go. I found it. I knew that rabbit was out there. It just took me a minute to catch it. All right, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he tells them, I want you to remember this and never forget this feast. And so God has delivered you by his own power. Four times it says, by the strong hand of the Lord. And this is, by the way, called anthropomorphic language. Anthro, like anthropos man, pomorphic, talking about, you know, language of man expressed, kind of helping us picture the form of what God did. It wasn't that literally the hand of God was out there squishing Egyptian soldiers, okay? This is a picture of God is using his power. And it's even more than that. This is what's kind of cool about that. That was a term that was used often by the Egyptians to explain the power of Pharaoh. Pharaoh often conquered all kind of different armies and nations and peoples with his strong arm. And so God is making it clear. There's only one person who has a strong arm, and that is God the creator of the universe, Yahweh, I am that I am. He's the one who has a strong arm that's able to save, is able to conquer, that spoke the world into existence, that causes everything to be. And so remember, God delivered you by his power. And secondly, remember that you need to share the story. You need to share and teach the story to your children. Deuteronomy 6, 8, I've already read that a moment ago. It says, the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, And then it goes on to say, diligently teach these things to your children as they rise up, as they go, as they lie down. So you're to diligently teach and impart these things. It does not say in here, Israel, you've got to come up with some kind of a program that you get some kind of institution or group to teach your kids these things. Not there. Again, God's not going to one day call your kids principals or Sunday school teachers or Bible study leaders or the children's minister or the youth minister or whatever before his throne and say, how did you do raising everybody else's kids? Did you do? Because I'm going to hold you accountable. No, he is going to call you parents, starting with the dad, before him. And he's going to ask you, how did you do? I gave you so much. Did you obey my word? Did you raise your kids? Our job as the body of Christ, Cross Life Church, as we see it biblically, is to come beside parents and we define the win by how are we doing as the body of Christ coming aside one another and parents to help them impart and pour into their kids. Those of you that don't have kids, empty nester, grown up, God's never, you've never had children, whatever, you have a role to play in praying for and encouraging. And man, it's, being parents are tough stuff, man. It is hard. It is difficult to not want to throw in the towel all the time. I mean, we daily, or not daily, but at least weekly, we, we make a drive past the fire department and think about dropping a kid off there. You need to explore what's the, how, how, how old the, there's a cutoff, right? You just have one year. So we passed it with Caroline. So now we're stuck. 
But sometimes the driving by just gives you a moment to cool off, so that helps. But, so we do that anyways. We do the drive. I'm just kidding. We don't do that. Um, so, but nonetheless, it is difficult, and we need encouragement, and we need help, and we need a home field advantage. And so we need the body of Christ coming beside us, helping us teach our kids these things. And it's really helpful if you guys would live it with us and hold us accountable to living it, and you live it so we could emulate the gospel in our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, in the body of Christ. And then we have teachers helping them when we have opportunities to point at the kids that get it and are with us and are modeling these things with for our kids. We need the body of Christ to do this together. Diligently teach these things to your children. So he tells us to keep it before them. It shall be a sign on your hand, a memorial before your eyes. Literally, the Jews did this. They, they took a little box, they called phylacteries, and they put the law on their head, and they'd strap it to their arms, and so they'd have the law before them, and they would have a little mezuzah, and they'd put that on the door, and that would have a copy of the law in there. In fact, when we got our house, it was a, I don't have time to tell you the whole God story in it, but it was a God story. God provided this perfect house for us in, in a timing that was just, wow, it was incredible. Nonetheless, when we got into it, there was a mezuzah on the front door. There was a Jewish man that had lived there before. And so it was a reminder of us of what was a foundational core value of our church that we would diligently teach our kids. And God blessed us with this house that had this mezuzah on the front door. And so our first night staying in the house, we went and got a screwdriver and unscrewed that thing and pulled it off and pulled the little copy of the Hebrew law. And I read it and translated it for my children. I didn't do that. I did read Deuteronomy 6, 8 for my children and uh, in English and we prayed and we celebrated the fact that God had blessed us with this home and a reminder to us that this is what we're supposed to be about. This is what we're supposed to be. But here's the problem. They would put that on their door. They put that on their forehead. They put that on their hands and they would be ritualistic about it. And you'd see them praying like this at the Western Wall and different places, intensely praying. But it became for them a ritualistic thing. And it went, it was here, it was here, it was here. It was on the doorpost, but it was never here. So they went through the formality of it, and we have so many kids walking away from God because their parents have the law on their forehead, on their hands, maybe on their door. They've got scripture verses posted up around the house and crosses hung out around the house, but they're not imparting it into their children, and because they're not actively doing it as a way of life, their kids are walking away from God, and they're going out from us because they never knew us. They never knew God. That's why they walk away from Him, and so we want to Keep it before them. Look for fresh ways. So that could be celebrating. Redeem the rhythms of, of our community, of our life. Take Christmas. Take Passover. Uh, take Easter. Take all these different, take some of the Jewish holidays. Take the holidays we celebrate as Christians. Take every Sunday. Take every time you eat meat. When you eat meat, something died to fill your belly. And so you could sit in McDonald's and have an incredible, well, it's not really meat, but you could sit in some restaurants that have beef and you could celebrate what god has done and how something died so that we could have life and so we just want to thank the lord that he has provided life for us and and do that celebrate look for ways in a rhythm of life to look for uh redeeming ideas that point to the cross and point to jesus and help us remember uh, one of the things that my wife does with her kids all the time is whenever there's a siren of a you know emergency vehicle going by we pray for the whatever's going on there I mean, if, whether we don't know if it's a cat in a tree or if somebody's really uh, close to dying, we just pray for them that God would give those workers wisdom and know what to do and that he would preserve life and that that person would come to faith in Christ. And so we, we redeem those things. Keep it before your kids. Remember the blood and remember the cost. Remember the covering and remember the cost. He says in verse 15, when the Pharaoh stubbornly refused, let me go to bed 14. When in time your 
to come. Your son asks you, what does this mean? Are you ready to answer that question? What does this mean? Why do we go to church? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we celebrate Easter? Why do we celebrate? Why do we talk about the Passover? Why do we talk about these different things? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we go to church on Sundays? Why do, we, do you have answers for these things? That's why we're, you, you should be coming trying to get answers every Sunday. We're trying to grow. You should be reading the Word so you get answers, so you can answer these questions. And specifically, what has God done in your life, mom, dad, adult, parent? Have you seen the strong hand of the Lord as he brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage and captivity from the house of slavery? And can you articulate that to your children on ways that God has delivered you and is delivering you from the things you struggle with? Verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. What does that mean? That means as a memorial, all the firstborn animals, the clean animals that are used for, for worship and sacrifice, they sacrifice the firstborn of every animal that opens the womb of that animal, the, the, the parent, and as a commemoration to remember how God had delivered his people. But every firstborn son, they don't kill, obviously. God doesn't kill babies. God does not approve of abortion. God does not approve of, of any kind of genocide of murdering people, whether it's an unborn child or it's an older person. That way, yeah, they're a drain on society. That's not a biblical concept, which is one of the reasons I don't really like socialism and communism, but that's another sermon for another day. But he does value life, and he wants to redeem those children wants to redeem them. And so shed some blood of an animal on behalf of them because the only reason they're living and that they'll have salvation one day is because one is going to shed their uh, firstborn son is going to die in their place. And that firstborn son will be Jesus. We know looking back, that was Jesus. They're looking forward, it will be Jesus. So the covering of the blood. So in the cost that there was, they need to, they need to have their sins covered by the blood and they want to be redeemed, bought back. That means to be bought back or out of slavery and bondage. That's what redemption means, or to be redeemed, to be paid off. And so it's, it shall be a mark on your hand and the frontlets between your eyes by the strong arm of the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. And the last couple thoughts is the preparation, the path of preparation. He says in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. In other words, if you were to look at a map of Egypt, okay, he didn't lead them around the Mediterranean Sea right up through the Philistines' land to Promised Land, which would have been the, the quick way. But he leads them down towards the desert, okay, out into the wilderness, which is clearly the scenic route, okay? It's not the quick route. It's a kind of an odd way for him to lead them. And so why did he do that? Well, it says, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. That's the key phrase. But God led them around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, that the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made his sons 400 years previously of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Joshua chapter 24, verse 32 references that. And then in the end of Genesis, it references that. So Joshua knew that one day God would deliver his people. And so he said, hey, when God sent you, sent you guys back to the promised land from here, take my bones with you. Don't leave them here. And so they embalmed Joseph and preserved his body. Um, and so it was there somewhere in Goshen. 
waiting for this time. And 400 years later, God delivers them. And they, he tells them, hey, go get his bones. And so the path of preparation, God knew that they weren't ready. God led them in a direction that would best mature them and prepare them for a future battles. Understand this in your relationship with Christ. God doesn't lead you on the path of least resistance. God leads you in a path that is going to best mature you and prepare you for future battles. God will not lead you into a battle that he has not prepared you and equipped you for. But God leads you in the best path that's going to prepare you for future battles, hence the path of preparation. And we'll get into that more next week. And lastly, God with us day and night. This is an important place for us to land as we wrap this up this morning. They moved on to Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the Lord. Now, what is he, what is he saying there? Well, God manifested his presence for his people by this big giant tower of a cloud during the day. And they could see that cloud. Some people estimate and believe that that cloud provided shade for them as they walk through the hot wilderness, which eventually is going to turn into a 40-year wandering. Um, at this point, that hadn't happened yet. But he provides a covering for them that protects them for that period. Uh, and so for that whole 40 years, God leads them, manifesting his presence in a pillar, this big column of fire. And then at night, it was a big, I'm sorry, during the day, a big column of a cloud. And then at night, a big pillar column of fire that would lead them at night. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in the wilderness, out in the woods at night without light. But it's really creepy. It's really creepy. And I don't know if it's because of all of this junk that we put in our minds of different movies and images and things that we assume the worst. I'm not sure. Or if it's just our nature. I think part of it's just our nature. That all of us, we wonder what's in the darkness, what's in the shadow, what's there that we can't see, that creepy thing uh, that, that's out there that we don't know about. And so I, I took one of my sons, we went on a little camping trip, little, uh, went out in the woods, and we, we stayed in hammocks out exposed to the elements. And, and it's kind of funny, that my kids are always like, you know, they would rather be in a tent because that will protect us from a bear, of course. That thin material, right? That'll make a difference. Um, you know, keeping that bear out. But, uh, but the feeling of being in a hammock without being enclosed in something gives you this sense of vulnerability. And so uh, we did it. I did it kind of intentionally because I wanted to remind them and in their hearts that, they, that God will protect us. God will take care of us. God will protect us. And to be honest, don't tell my kids this, but, you know, I get nervous sometimes too. And I'm thinking, how can I outrun them, you know, if something happens? I mean, how can I... Um, you know, what, how, how can I get out of my hammock faster than they can? I'm just kidding. I don't think that. But every once in a while, I want to put the light on too and look around just like you hear a little crack of something and then you're just... And it's amazing how a simple fire brings so much security in the wilderness, doesn't it? Just with the warmth and the illumination of that flickering light, that simple light makes you feel like, okay, I feel good. It's, okay, we're safe now. It's a fire. God graciously takes a symbol and something that we all understand and provides this beautiful protection for his people, this beautiful sense of, I'm with you. I'm protecting you. I'm illuminating the way. I'm with you. There's a couple Psalms that beautifully lay this out. Psalms chapter 3 and Psalms chapter 4. 
And one of them is a evening psalm and one of them is a nighttime psalm. And they believe that often in worship and in homes, they would go to these psalms and they would read one in the morning and they would read one at night. And it was a reminder of God's presence being. I just want to read an excerpt of both of those. In Psalms chapter 3, verse 5, it says, I lay down and I slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I lay down and I slept. And I awoke, the Lord had sustained me. You are never more vulnerable in your life ever than when you're asleep. I mean, you can't protect yourself. You you have completely relaxed your body and rested yourself. And you are completely vulnerable. Something can happen to you at night. Somebody could come in, a plane could land on your house, whatever, something can happen. And you can't possibly have any way of anticipating what's about to happen because in that moment you have completely put your faith and trust knowingly or unknowingly in the sovereign hand of God to sustain you you can't keep yourself breathing you can't keep your heart beating you can't do anything to sustain yourself and so when we go to sleep at night we lay our heads in a pillow but ultimately we're laying our heads in the hands of God we're trusting him to sustain us through the night and that in the morning when we awaken the lord has sustained us i'm not going to be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up against me i can rest and i can go to sleep at night and i can wake up in the morning and know the lord has sustained me and then in chapter four verses um, six through eight it says there are many who say who will show us some good He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Think of the flame, the pillar of fire. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart, unceasing joy in my heart, than they have have when their grain and their wine abound. In other words, you have put more joy in my heart, unceasing joy, than I would ever have when circumstantially everything looks good. Resting in you is far better and having the light of your face and your presence is far greater for me. Verse eight, in peace, I both lie down and I sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm unafraid. God has given us better than a pillar of fire and, and a pillar of cloud. His Holy Spirit that's not manifested in an external thing, but when you become a believer, it comes in and dwells you. It doesn't just give you the external manifestation of God in the middle of a nation, but within each person all over the world. Our friends we just prayed for that are awake evidently right now on the other side of the world in northern India, the Holy Spirit is indwelling them and sustaining them and giving them peace. And here we are on the other side of the globe, and we're here worshiping God, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and is giving us peace and is giving us hope and is speaking to us and His presence is with us. God is everywhere in the hearts of his believers. Everyone who's submitted themselves to King Jesus, his spirit has filled them and is indwelling them and is giving them hope and peace and encouragement and empowerment to proclaim boldly the gospel to their children, to their neighbors, to the world. How incredible is God? King George VI in 1939, he had a Christmas address and this was in the midst of dark days of the World War II. And nobody knew this, but King George the, the Sixth, at the same time, he also was battling cancer, and that wasn't a public thing. And he addressed the nation of England on a radio address, regular radio address, Christmas address. 
He said this, he said, I said to the man, looking towards the year ahead and thinking, I don't know what's going to happen in my life, battling cancer. I don't know what's going to happen with our nation, with Germany bombing us on a regular capacity, a regular day. I I don't know what's going to happen with this war. He's thinking of all these things, but wanting to instill his people with hope. He says, he says, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied to me. Go out into the darkness, the unknown, the the place where you just don't know what's going to happen. Walk boldly into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God. That shall be for you better than the light and safer than the known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God trod gladly into the night. His presence led me towards the hills and the breaking of the day in the east. Counts for you, believer, follower of Jesus, is put your hand in the hand of God. Stop looking for functional saviors. Stop looking for something else that's going to deliver you. There's nothing else. The known is not the the best option. Going back to Egypt is never going to save you. Going back to whatever addictions and patterns and issues and junk of the past, never going to save you. But go forward, even if it leads to the dead end of the Red Sea, knowing that, that putting your hand in the hand of God is better than the known and safer than the light. You don't know Jesus. You've never repented of your sins and submitted to your Christ. I maintain to you, this is the God who followers of Jesus have submitted themselves to. And I would challenge you to repent of your sin and put your trust in him so that you too can rest your head at night in the hands of God, knowing that he will sustain you, not just when you sleep and you wake up, but when you breathe your last breath, you'll awaken in the presence of God. It is better to put your hand in the hand of God, walk safely into the darkness, knowing that it's better than the known way, safer than the light. Let's pray. 